So how many of you guys, this is your first time here in the Philly area? How many of you guys? Yeah, here in Philly, um, welcome. I hope you guys have enjoyed it so far. Uh, we're, we're known for a few different things. Uh, we're known for our cheesesteaks. I don't know if you guys have gotten a chance to try some cheesesteaks. Uh, we're known for our history. Any of you guys really into history here? Two of you? All two of you. I'm, I'm there with you. We're also known for having one of the most notorious sports fan bases in the country. Uh, in fact, when I went to college, I went to college in Chicago, and my friends were like, why do you guys hate your sports teams? Why are you guys always booing your own players? And they took it as a sign of being a bad fan, but any good Philadelphian will tell you, it's not that we're bad fans, it's not that we're disloyal, it's that we're, we're really passionate. And in fact, we're passionate and we expect a certain level of performance. Philadelphia is a very much what have you done for me lately kind of town. And that's why when the Eagles who won the Super Bowl in 2018 and were being worshipped and uh, on Broad Street and had this huge parade and we were like, we're going to love you forever. Opening game of next season, they have a bad first half and we're booing them because, yeah, awesome. Nick Foles, you were Super Bowl MVP, but... You just threw like three incompletions in a row. What are you doing? Um, and I can verify this because Dave and I, we were there that opening day. Unfurl the banner saying we're, we're never going to give up on you guys. We're always going to love you. And then, yeah, 30 minutes later, you guys are garbage. Why are you guys even <laughs> – leave our team. Uh, and Philadelphia fans are all about performance, performance-based love. We love you. As long as you do what we expect and you represent our city well and you win every game and if you even think about losing or make one tiny mistake, you're dead to us. And that's performance-based love. And sadly, that kind of love, I think, bleeds into a lot of other relationships we see. It bleeds into friendships so that you can have this great, awesome friendship and then someone makes a mistake, they do something dumb, they do something they shouldn't have done, all of a sudden, that friendship was over. That's performance-based love. It can happen when we try to dress a certain way, act a certain way, try to get the approval of our peers, and we think, you know, if only I do these things, if people see me this way, they'll like me. And then the second you kind of fall short of that standard that your friends or your peers have set for you, you're disappointed, uh, you're ostracized, you're like, Nope, don't hang out with that guy. We even see it in celebrity culture. As soon as you say something that's out of line with the world we live in, you're done. You go from popular the best to, like, no, we don't even talk about that person. Worldly love, the way that the world knows how to love, is based on performance. It's if you do this, if you act this way, you talk this way, you look this way, you dress this way, we'll love you. And I'm sure all of us have experienced the disappointment, the exhaustion, the frustration of trying to live in such a way that we can perform so that others will approve us, that others will like us, and falling short. And sadly, it doesn't even end there because sometimes we import that view of performance-based love onto God. I think sometimes we think that we have to earn his approval um, and that his love for us is based on our performance. Some of us some of us try to attend every Bible study, go to every youth group event, serve in every ministry we can, and we think that if we go on that missions trip, if we do all of these things, 
then we'll earn God's love. Then he'll approve of us. Then uh, he will accept us. Others of us, it looks a little different. Maybe you just think, all right, I've got too much baggage. I've sinned too much. I've made too many mistakes. And so you're like, God's not going to accept me because of my performance. And you try to keep a distance. You just think, all right, well, God's never going to accept me anyway, so I might as well just not even try, not even get close. Um, but all of, the, all of this comes from a wrong understanding of who God is. As we're going to see in Philippians 3 today, God's love for us, it's not performance-based. It's not based on our works. God's love for us is based not on what we can do for him, not on if we earn it or if we are worthy of it, but because of what he's done for us. So let's look at Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. So right off the bat, he says one of the main things we're going to look at, which is rejoicing in the Lord. Now, you guys have been going through the book of Philippians. The words rejoice and joy and joyful, they're a big theme in Philippians. They're something that I'm sure in the past studies you guys have talked about, uh, in the upcoming studies this weekend you're going to talk about. And joy, just a major theme in this book. But this, this particular, these verses, they have a little bit of a different thrust to them. He's actually not talking about being joyful in all situations, although the Bible says that we need to do that. Or even being thankful for the things that God has given us, although we should be thankful for that too. No, this rejoicing, the focus is rejoice in the Lord. And that's rejoicing in who God is and what he's done and how he saved us. And this is the main point, the main idea of what Paul is telling us to rejoice in in these verses. And Paul says he's written these things to the Philippians before. He says, uh, to write the same things to me, it's not tedious, but for you it's safe. In other words, I've written this before, but I'm not going to stop telling you this because this is so foundational. This is so key to our identity as Christians, and it's something we need to be constantly reminded of. That word, it's safe, it's a, or your Bible might say it's a safeguard, it might seem a little weird of a thing to say about rejoicing in the Lord, but it all makes a little more sense when you contrast it with verse 2, where he says, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Now, he's not talking about Rover or Clifford the Big Red Dog. He's not saying you need to worry that you're going to get bitten, don't worry about rabies or anything like that. No, he's not talking about actual dogs. What he's talking about is a group of people known as the Judaizers, which the three of you guys who said you like history, we're going to do a little history lesson, so you three enjoy. Everyone else, try not to fall asleep. But at the beginning of the church, when Christ ascended back into heaven and he said, all right, you guys, you're going to spread the gospel everywhere. At first, the church was pretty much exclusively Jewish. The only people who were believers at that time were Jew, uh, were Jewish, were Jews. But in Acts chapter 10, that all started to change. When Cornelius, who was a Roman Gentile centurion, got saved. And this started raising an important question in the church. And that is, can Gentiles be saved or do they have to become Jewish first? Do they have to start keeping and following the Jewish law? And pretty quickly, they discovered that the answer is no. They don't need to be Jewish. They don't need to keep the Jewish law. What Christ has done for them is enough. 
And in Acts 15, we read about a big council that all the early church leaders had where they decided the answer to this question was no. Gentiles don't have to become Jewish or follow the Jewish law in order to be saved. They just need Christ. However, there was a certain group of believers, of Jewish believers in the church then, that didn't really accept this answer. They didn't like uh, the answer that they got. They didn't believe that faith in Christ was enough. They believed that you needed to keep the Jewish law in order to be saved. And this group became known as the Judaizers. And this is the group that Paul is warning about in verse 2 because they were going everywhere preaching like, oh, you Gentiles, you think you're saved just because you've trusted in Christ? Well, are you keeping the Jewish law? Are you following all of these laws? Are you a practicing Jewish person? And they were basically saying, if that's not the case, you can't really trust that you're saved. And that's what Paul is warning these people about, these believers in Philippi. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. These were actually three ironic ways to refer to the Judaizers because the Judaizers, and actually most Jewish people back then, referred to Gentiles as dogs. It was a very degrading, insulting term for Gentiles. And what Paul is doing is he's turning it on, back on them, and he's saying, these guys, the ones who are questioning the salvation of people who have trusted in Christ, they're the real dogs. The Judaizers claimed that the only way to be saved is to do good works, and only people who kept the law were doing good works, and that those who were not keeping the Jewish law were evil workers. But he's saying, no, these are the evil workers that you need to be aware of, that you need to watch out for. And then the mutilation, they said you had to be circumcised to be saved, and he's saying, no, they're just mutilating themselves. So these three titles he's saying is you need to watch out for these guys. They're not rejoicing in the Lord. They're actually rejoicing in their own works. They're rejoicing in themselves. And that was the problem with the Judaizers. They're teaching that faith is not enough. They're teaching that you need faith in Christ plus good works. And your salvation then was not dependent just on Christ and his work in the on the cross. Your salvation was dependent on you, your performance, what you can do. Can you earn God's approval through your works, through your law keeping? And this is the message, not just of the Judaizers back then, but of every world religion today. It's can you do enough good works to please your God? Can you earn your way to salvation or heaven or whatever the goal of your religion is? And if you do enough good, you'll be saved. But if you don't, if you fall short, you're going to be rejected. But this isn't just the message of world religions. It's also the message of our secular world today, uh, that you need to say the right things, do the right things, act the right way, wear the right things if you want approval. The world only understands performance-based love, but this is not what the love of God is. And he contrasts what it really means to be a believer in verse 3. He said, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. So in contrast to these Judaizers who are saying, you need to work, you need to earn God's love, he's saying, we're the ones who, we worship God in the Spirit. We don't worship God through our own actions. We don't worship him by trying to earn his love. We worship him through the Holy Spirit. We, rejoiced in, we rejoice in Christ Jesus. We don't rejoice in the fact that we're such good people, that we've earned this, that we deserve God's love. We rejoice that Christ Jesus saved us, that he looked on us, 
and he died for us, that that is the basis of our rejoicing. And have no confidence in the flesh. In other words, our boasting is not in our flesh. The word flesh in the Bible is used for our own actions or our own life apart from Jesus. So we're not boasting in, well, this is how holy or spiritual I am, or this is how wise and intelligent I am, or this is how smart or fast or strong or you know, musical or artistic or athletic or whatever. He's saying we don't boast in those things. Our boasting, our confidence is in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And in verse 4 he says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I have I more so. So if since the Judaizers taught that salvation came through following the Jewish law, he then does a thought experiment. He says that if anyone was going to be saved based on their performance, based on the good works that they did, it actually would have been me. And Paul is going to give his own version of his spiritual resume. He's going to say, if there was a life that was worthy of God's love, if there was someone who could earn this or deserve it, it would be me. So he's going to list seven things that make him, at least before he was saved, in his mind, worthy of God's love. So he says in verse uh, 5, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So these first four things he lists on his spiritual resume are things that were his by birth. Circumcised on the eighth day, which was traditional of all good Jewish boys, uh, meant his parents were very uh, practicing Jews, that they were fulfilling the Jewish law. Of the stock of Israel, he was ethnically a Jew. He was not. He didn't convert to Judaism. He wasn't a Gentile who followed the Jewish law. He was a pure-blooded Jewish boy. He could rejoice in the fact that I'm one of God's people. But not just one of God's people, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. And the tribe of Benjamin was one of the most prestigious tribes in all of Israel. The tribe of Benjamin was one of the two tribes that, with Judah, followed the line of David and David's kings. Benjamin was the son of Jacob, the father of Israel's uh, favorite wife, Rachel. Benjamin just had a lot of things going for it. It was one of the most uh, loyal-to-God tribes in all of the tribes of Israel. So claiming that he was not just an Israelite, but a Benjamite was like, yeah, I'm one of the elite uh, Jewish people. I'm one of the elite Israelites. And a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he was thoroughly Jewish. He was completely, you know, every good Jewish mother and every good Jewish father's dream. He is the gold standard when it comes to Israelite heritage. But it wasn't just his heritage that made him and made his spiritual resume impressive. He said, concerning the law, a Pharisee. Now, when we hear that word Pharisee, we immediately think of the people who killed Jesus. We have a very negative connotation of Pharisees. But back then, that was like elite status for a Christian if you were, a, or not for a Christian, for a Jewish person rather, if you were a Pharisee, you were one of the holy ones. You know, it's almost, I mean, I don't think you guys necessarily revere monks or nuns or anything like that, but in certain circles, it would almost be saying like, I was a nun, I was a monk, I was like one of the spiritual elites. They were the people that uh, Jewish people would look up to and be like, man, I wish I could love God as much as those Pharisees. So in terms of what 
group he belonged to. He was in the elite of the elite, spiritually speaking. His passion was unmatched. Look at verse 6. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Again, persecuting the church, church we don't look at as a positive. But back then, if you were so passionate about true Judaism that they believed that the church, they believed that Christians were spreading a dangerous heresy that was going to destroy the people of God. And so he was so passionate about what he believed was the truth that he was willing to go to the lengths of violence and persecution in order to fight for the truth. So he was elite, he was passionate, and then this last statement, kind of shocking, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He's like, I could honestly stand up and say, I have kept the law. I've obeyed what God's law has said. Not perfectly, but to what standard that they would hold people to back in those times, blameless. There is nothing that you could get up and say, look at Paul, he is a this, he is a that, he breaks this law, he breaks that, that law. No, he kept the Jewish law to a T. He kept every single aspect of that Jewish law and tradition. And so he lays out this spiritual resume, and it's about as impressive a spiritual resume as you could lay out. If anyone could have earned God's approval, it would have been Paul. And before Christ, that's how he thought he was going to gain God's approval. He was like, Lord, look, by birth, I'm as good as you can get. I'm as pure. I'm as, you know, as Jewish as you can get. And my actions speak for themselves. I obviously love you. You can tell by the things I do for you. You can tell by my performance. You can tell by what group I belong to. But, um, and Paul was trying to gain approval the way the world does. Again, through his performance, through the things he did. And many of us try to gain approval in the same way. For some of us, it's from others. We think if we can just show how athletic, how musical, how artistic we are, if we can just join ourselves with the right social cause, if we can just wear the right thing, um, if we can just fit in with the cool crowd, we're going to find affirmation from others, and that's going to be what will give us joy and satisfaction in life. But you also, like Paul, might be trying to prove yourself or earn God's favor by your own spiritual performance. Again, maybe you think that by going to church, being involved in youth group, attending Christian school, going on a mission trip, and being that good Christian kid, that that's what's going to save you in the end. And I know that. I know what it's like because that was me. Growing up, I, I went to church here. I went to school here. I was there every Sunday. I was at every youth group event. Um, went on every trip, went on every outreach, went on all of that stuff, knew every Bible verse. Well, didn't know every Bible verse, but, uh, you know, knew, knew all the Bible stories at least. And, you know, I, I thought, all right, my actions, the things I've done, God's got to accept me because look, look what I've done for him. Look at all these good things I've done. Look at how, how good of a good Christian kid I am. But on the inside, that something wasn't working, something wasn't right. And that's what Paul gets to in these next verses. He's, he discovered that none of us will find joy in the works of our own flesh. No matter where we seek approval, whether from God or from others, trying to find joy from our own works and performance, it's going to leave us disappointed and burnt out. We, and it makes us a slave. It makes us a slave to our own passions, to other people's expectations, to our own weaknesses. But the good news is, is that in Christ, 
Paul found a solution to this problem. Verse 7, he says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted as loss for Christ. Anyone living in that time would have looked at Paul's life and think that he had a lot going for him. They gladly would have taken even a fraction of Paul's resume, but his evaluation of things was different. He looked at the things that the culture said he should be proud of, and he examined and he determined, he said, all these things that I thought were gain to me, they turned out to be a loss. And this is accounting terminology. You guys know, you know, a business or a company, or if you do like personal finance or you do your own budget, you look at, all right, these are all of my expenses. These are the things that gained me money, or a company will say, these are the things that gained money for us, and these are the things that lost money for us. And, you know, if, you know, say a clothing company, if they're like, all right, we made $100,000 selling these t-shirts, and we lost $100,000 selling these blue jeans. What they're going to do is they're going to be like, all right, we're doing well with t-shirts. Let's double down on t-shirts, but we need to cut our losses. We're losing money on blue jeans, so let's stop selling blue jeans. And that's what Paul's doing spiritually. He's looking at his life. He's looking at each facet in his life, and he's like, is this a gain or is this a loss? Is this helping me get closer to God or is this keeping me further away from God? And he looks at these things, these things that the world says, these are obviously gains. Oh, you're a Pharisee? That's amazing. You're persecuting the church? You're getting rid of those people who are ruin, ruining Judaism? That's great. You're from the tribe of Benjamin? That's awesome. And he looks at these things and he says, no, they're a loss. And by saying they're a loss, he's not just saying, oh, well, these were good things that I had to give up in order to follow Jesus. They were awesome, but I found something that was just a little bit better. No, he's saying they were negative, that they're a detriment, that these were actually bad things for him. And why were these things a loss? I mean, we look at these things and, all right, I can get how persecuting the church could be a loss, but being blameless uh, according to the law, being an Israelite, wouldn't those things be good? Wouldn't those things be gain? And Paul says, no, these things were a loss because as long as I had them in my life, I was trusting in them rather than trusting in Christ. He's like, I, these are a loss because they caused me to take pride in who I was and in what I was able to do for God rather than to put my faith in Christ and what he's done for me. And the culture said that spiritual status is what made someone truly great but Paul discovered that something was even greater. He says in verse 8, Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Um, and so that incomparably better thing that he discovered uh, right there, it says the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Um, and he realized that because knowing Christ was so great, it was worth giving up everything. This is a reminder of Jesus' teaching in, you don't have to flip there, but Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46, he told a, par a parable saying, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And Paul's saying that, my life was like that. I had all these things that seemed so valuable and important and precious to me. But when I found Christ, when I met Christ, I realized that none of those things mattered anymore. 
and I was willing to give all of those things up. Look, he says he suffered the loss not just of the things he mentioned. He says all things. And he says that um, I was willing to do that because of, it says, the excellence, or I think ESV says the surpassing worth of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And he discovered that knowing Christ was so wonderful, so valuable, that in the end, it wasn't even hard for him to give up his old identity. In fact, it says he counts them as rubbish. Some of your Bibles might say dung or sewage. The idea is something absolutely disgusting. These things that the world said were amazing, he looked back on and he said, I don't even want that. That would be like, you know, looking back at sewage and saying, yeah, I could take some of that. Yeah, I'd love that. No, he's like, compared to knowing Christ, all these things the world said was great, they're sewage. They're nothing. They're disgusting. Um, they're not desirable in the least. And so he's talked about what he's given up. Now he's going to elaborate on what it is he's gained. He says that, um, picking up at the end of verse 8, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I might gain Christ. He's lost everything before him so that he may gain Christ and be found in him, verse 9, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which, through fi- which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Uh, here Paul describes a trade. In his old life, he lost his old life, but instead he gained Christ. This is not him buying or trading for his salvation. He's not earning it. Paul's not contradicting uh, what he said before, but he's saying, I gladly gave these things up. I realized that these things were keeping me from Christ. I got rid of them. In exchange for all of these things, I gained Christ. And then um, verse 9 describes this exchange of life based on him and his own performance for one that's entirely based not on what Paul could do for God, but uh, Christ's free gift of grace. He says, uh, to be found in him not having a righteousness, my, uh, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. In other words, no longer am I Paul, the good Jewish boy. Paul, the elite, spiritual, holy Pharisee. Paul, the guy who is blameless according to the law. But he says, I look at me, or God looks at me, and he sees Christ's righteousness. I have a righteousness that doesn't come from my own keeping of the law, but that's from faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And he realizes that who he is, his core identity, is based not on his own works, but on his faith in Christ and what Christ has done for him. And that God sees him not based on his performance, but on Christ's righteousness. But the gospel isn't just a legal reality. It's not just about not facing the consequences for our sin. It's deeply personal. He says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This deeply personal knowledge of Christ he's describing, I'm sure many of you guys have heard the analogy, the difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. You know, I mentioned earlier Nick Foles. I can tell you stats about him. I can tell you what team he plays for. But he doesn't answer my text messages. He hasn't ever tweeted back at me. I've never hung out with him. Um, 
I am not the godfather of his child. I, um, I don't have a key to his house. I don't have any of those things. I don't know Nick Foles. I know a good bit about him. And when he talks about knowing Christ, he's not just saying, all right, I know that he's the guy who died on the cross. I know he's the guy who wrote again. I know he's the guy that my pastor likes to talk about. Or I know all the Bible stories that talk about God or something like that. He says, I know Christ. And it's this relationship. It's this deep personal knowledge that he has. He's given up trying to impress God with his performance and his actions. And instead, he's dived into a relationship with God in which he has this deep personal knowledge, this friendship with God. Uh, This is not academic knowledge. It's personal knowledge. We get to know him. And in addition to getting to know Jesus, he mentions two things specifically that he's gotten to know. And that is, the first one is the power of his resurrection. And that's not just, although it includes being raised from the dead at the end of his life, but Paul would describe his conversion to Christ as a resurrection. That he was dead in his sins. He was dead in the things that he was doing, the lifestyle he was living. And he experienced resurrection. He experienced the power that Christ has to change a life, to totally transform a life. And the fellowship of his suffering. And you might be thinking, that's not something to get excited about. Am I supposed to wake up in the morning and be like, thank you, God, that I get to know the fellowship of your suffering. Just praise you, God, for that. But those of you who have walked with Jesus for a length of time can attest to the fact that some of the greatest growth in our our walks with the Lord, in fact, probably most of the greatest growth, comes in times of trial, comes in times of suffering. And I can think of times in my life, really difficult times where I was struggling with something. I think particularly a semester in college where I just had a really close friend who was struggling with all kinds of things, with suicidal thoughts and just thoughts against himself and, and all of these things. And I was like, Lord, why are you allowing this to happen to me? And through that, he taught me to trust. He taught me to grow in him. And uh, he just worked out all of these amazing things. And it's these times of suffering that God really speaks to us. And the reality is that both Christians and the world face suffering. Becoming a Christian, we don't become a Christian because that means, all right, I used to suffer and go through difficult things, and now I'm saved, now I'm a believer, now I don't have to suffer anymore, now I don't have to go through difficult things. But the um, the world, we suffer, the world suffers, but when, when unbelievers suffer, they try to find ways to either avoid suffering or to medicate their suffering. They try to either, how can I suffer as little as possible Or how can I find something that will at least make the suffering a little bit easier? But for the Christian, Jesus Jesus turns suffering on its head by making suffering something that actually serves his purposes. And we get to know the Lord better in our sufferings. And you notice that word fellowship. It's It's not just that, all right, Jesus allows us to go suffering so that we can know him better. But it's fellowship. It's a sharing. It's joining in with the fact that he suffered for us, that he went to the cross for us, and we get to join in um, with Christ's sufferings for us. And so, um, <clears throat> these, this verse, this verse 10, 
these things that he mentioned he knows, they should cause us to maybe think, is that what's happening in my life? Do I actually know Jesus? Not just facts about him. Do I know him? Do I know him the way Paul's describing? Do I know what he's like? Have I experienced his work, his love, his kindness in my own life? Do I know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering? He finishes by saying that um, being uh, conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. We become like his death by allowing our old identity, the identity that was without Christ, that lived by self-effort to die with him on the cross so that we can be raised with him to new life in his resurrection. And as we get through these verses, there's probably a few questions or even objections that could be raised, such as, what does it actually look like to know and put your faith in Christ and his righteousness and not rely on your own performance or your own works? Or if we're saved by faith and not by doing good things or by our own righteousness, does that mean we don't have to keep the law and that instead we can just do whatever we want? And these are some of the things that Paul addresses in these next couple of verses. Look at verse 12. He says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. He starts off with the premise, I've not already attained this. I'm not already made perfect. Because it's really easy to read Paul and feel really condemned. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced where you're reading something and Paul just describes this rich knowledge of who Jesus is and you're like, man, I am never going to get there. I am never going to be at that level. And Paul says, hey, it's not like I'm not this perfect Christian. I'm not, I don't have this perfect knowledge of Jesus. I'm not completely there. I haven't arrived yet. But I'm pursuing I'm moving towards him. I'm getting closer. Um, but, and so, while, this, while God's love for us is not based on our performance, what that doesn't mean is that we're like, all right, he loves me no matter what I do. His love is not based on my performance, so I can do whatever I want. I can live whatever I want. No, Paul's response is not, all right, well, I've trusted in Christ. I've trusted in his righteousness, so doesn't matter what I do. God's got me. No, that motivates him to pursue. Uh, that word that you have for um, I press on, it's actually the same word that he uses earlier in verse uh, 6 when he talks about persecuting the church. The word for persecute and pursue, it's the same word there. He's like, as passionately as I pursued getting rid of the church, that's the passion, and actually with a greater passion, that I now pursue knowing Christ. And so even though we're trusting in Christ's works and not our own, that should motivate us to dive deeper into this reality, to pursue. But we don't do this on the basis of trying to earn God's love. This isn't a contradiction of everything that's come before it. Because look what he says at the end of verse 12. He says, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has already laid hold of me. I like how ESV translates it. It says that... Uh, that I might make Christ my own because he has already made me his own. It's the idea of I'm pursuing Christ so that I can get closer to him, but it's not from a perspective of, all right, Christ is all, all the way over there and I need to get to him because I'm all the way back here. No, it's Christ has already laid a hold of us. 
Christ has already made us his own. And what he's calling us to do is to dive deeper, to pursue deeper into that reality. Then look at verses 13 and 14. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so again, he prefaces it. He says, I haven't apprehended. I'm not there. I'm not completely at this perfect knowledge and love for Christ yet. And he's not, and we're not going to get to that place this side of eternity. One day we will, and it's going to be awesome. We're going to be in heaven with him. But this side of eternity, we're never going to have completely arrived. But instead, he describes a life of continual progress. We're continually getting deeper and deeper into this reality. And there's two ways in which we do that. So first he says, uh, forgetting the things which are behind. For some of us, that means letting go of a past that's filled with mistakes and sins and things that we think make us unworthy of Christ and his love. Um, Knowing that our relationship with him is not based on our works or our performance, uh, but on Christ and what he's done. But for others of us, forgetting what lies behind means, like Paul, forgetting the things that we think make us worthy to God. It means leaving behind the things that we're like, well, if I serve in this ministry, if I do this thing, if I go on this trip, that'll make God like me. That'll make God, you know, that'll make me worthy. It's forgetting those things. It's us no longer holding on to them as the basis for our walk with Christ, our relationship with him, but instead trusting in Christ and his righteousness and what he's done for us. And then instead of the things behind, after we've forgotten those, it says reaching out for the things ahead. It's the image of a runner running a race and stretching towards that finish line. We're moving towards a goal. We're moving towards a destination. And what is that finish line? It says in verse 14, the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is the calling that God has placed on each of our lives. He's called us to be his sons and daughters to be part of his family, to know him and to love him and be loved by him forever, and to follow him. It's a calling to be free from sin, to come out of the things that are destroying us, and to be made more like his son, Jesus Christ. The Christian life consists of diving deeper and deeper and deeper into this reality. Now, this is not a performance-based pursuit. Again, I can't stress this enough. This is not contradicting everything that came before it. We're not fleeing from sin and obeying Christ so that we can earn his love and approval. Rather, he calls us out of sin and to himself because he loves us. And he knows that these are the things that are destroying us. That, Guys, sin destroys. Sin only is capable of destroying. Uh, when the Bible says the wages of sin is death. It's saying that that's the only thing that sin ultimately leads to. And when Christ calls us to repent, to come out of our sin... He's not saying that as a condition. He's not saying, all right, well, if you repent, if you clean up your act, then maybe I'll love you. No, he's saying, that stuff's destroying you. Come out of it. Come to me. Satan's come to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come to give you life and life in abundance. So leave your sin behind. Leave all of that stuff behind. I love you, and I want to know you. And so... He knows that this is what's best for us. He knows that sin destroys, and he wants us to have abundant life in him. So as we look at 
look at these verses, they might hit each of you guys in a different way. Some of you guys might be living for the approval of others, and you've probably experienced the pressure to look, speak, and act based on what others expect. The exhaustion of trying to keep up appearances, of living this way. The disappointment of being rejected when you fail. And this is the way that the world loves, but this is not the love of God. And the gospel, the good news of what Jesus tells us is that God's love is not based on our performance. You don't have to keep working for it and trying to earn it. Um, that his love for us is based on his character and his work and what he's done for us. And he invites you to receive that love if you've never experienced that love before. Maybe it hits you and you feel unworthy, like you've messed up, that God could never accept you because of what you've done, of the life you've lived, the mistakes you've made. But know that God's love is not based on your works. It's not based on what you've done. And his love is open and available for you. And if you're trying to earn God's approval through the things you're doing at your church, in your youth group, at your school, your good works, mission trips, any of that, remember that God's love is not based on your performance. He loves you on your best days, the day you're absolutely on fire for him. And he loves you on your worst day, the day you really blew it, the day that you made that mistake you promised you were never going to make again, and here you are making that mistake again. He loves you on that day. We should neither boast in the good things we do and take pride in that and act like that's what's going to get us God's approval, nor, nor does he call us to despair in our failures as if we could never then measure up and receive his love. Know that his love for you is based on what he's done for you, not what you've done for him. And no matter which of these apply to you, pursue Christ. Seek to know him. Seek that knowledge that Paul talks about, that deep personal knowledge of him. Forget the things that are behind. Pursue the things that are ahead. Pursue that goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Dive deeper into that relationship with him. If, that, if this is a love that you've never experienced before, if this is something, a reality you've never dived into, I'd encourage you guys. I know next we have lunch and free time, right? Um, and you're going to have plenty of time. Talk to either your pastor, your small group leader, one of the staff members here. They'd love to talk to you about that and what it means to dive into that. But I'd encourage you, yeah, don't miss that opportunity. This is the love that's available and open for all of you guys. And so... I'm going to pray for you guys and uh, then hand it over to you. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much uh, for your word. Thank you so much for the truth of your word and the freedom to know that we don't need to earn your approval. We don't need to do anything, Lord, to gain your love that you've already done everything for us. Lord, help us to dive deeper into this reality. Help us to grow in our faith, in our love, in our knowledge of who you are. Help us to forget the things that are behind and to pursue the things that are ahead, to know you, the power of your resurrection, fellowship of your suffering, Lord. Make these verses true in our own lives. So we thank you, we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.